This is the Grilled Cheese and Gin Podcast, Episode 3, Redefining the Side Hustle. I'm Vicki Scott, and I am more of an electric slide kind of girl. And I'm Jessica, my kingdom for the hokey pokey herd. episode, we are discussing the side hustle, meaning an activity that you do in addition to your main income stream. For many creative types, side hustles may be the primary way we activate our creative life, or side hustles may be the way we finance our creative life. However, in the current economy, we find that it is almost required that everyone develop side hustles because a side hustle could be the thing that develops you for your next job. It could be an extra income stream. It could be your next business, as it was for our interview guest, Jody Rice. We've come up with a lot of questions, Vicki, maybe more than answers. <laughs> this is definitely something that I've struggled with, so... Just just looking back over the basics that we decided to talk about, I, how do you develop a side hustle? Like how like Jessica, we're both we talked about the job market in the last episode. What what do you consider a job and what do you consider a side hustle? Is it a side hustle if it takes less than 15 hours out of your week? Is it a side hustle if you don't get paid very much for it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a very good question. And like we I mentioned in the last podcast, there was that one YouTuber who has like seven. And that's just completely overwhelming to me. I feel like I would need a personal assistant if I had that many side hustles. I'd be like, just tell me what I'm supposed to be doing right now. Yeah. <laughs> They're like, oh, you're um, supposed to be working on TaskRabbit right now. You're an assistant to three other people. <laughs> <laughs> They're actually waiting on the Skype call. <laughs> yeah. Thank Thanks, you. Carrie. Take, take a break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Go get some coffee for yourself. <laughs> For yourself, for yourself. I would never presume. <laughs> but okay, so the basics. H- how do you develop a side hustle? A lot of the a lot of the common wisdom right now is that you basically figure out what you like doing. So you go on to like Craigslist or these job finding websites and you go into the gigs category and you find something that you would actually like to do like being a PA for a small indie film or um you know editing someone's manuscript the only thing that i would caution against is like if it says ghostwriter for no pay don't do that so you kind of <laughs> kind of have to like develop your own streetwise when it comes to this stuff you can't really like don't be giving away your work for free but at the same time know that you're going to probably have to work for a little bit less than you're worth for a while to prove yourself. Yeah. And I'm interested in like, I want to ask people questions like, how long were you doing your side hustle? That actually will come up in our interview. But like, how long were you doing this before it became a your full time income stream? And um, like, how many hours does it really take out of your week, you know, when you're developing it or you're just doing it as a side thing. And I feel like uh, I want to find out from people healthy ways in which they manage their side hustles, because I know I have so many friends that had all kinds of side things that they did and they were enjoying it, but it just takes like it would just they would just be exhausted all the time. And I feel like, how do you keep that up? Like, at at some point, right, don't you have to say this has to make me some income and I have to be able to manage this in a, like, a humane manner so that um, I'm not killing myself to have a creative life or to have a side hustle that is going to be a, um, like, a, a net when everything else goes down at this other place, which is so likely to happen these days. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it doesn't matter what kind of business you're in. Basically, we're all just like a couple of bad decisions, like all businesses are just like a couple of bad decisions away from 
folding. And I know that sounds really bleak, but um, that's kind of the economy we find ourselves in. Nobody has a, a huge um, savings. Nobody has a huge working capital. So it's like, okay, well, um, <laughs> make sure you're constantly looking to the next thing. But so how do you manage it? is one question is, is I think you manage it by being very cautious when you enter into these things, like just do a one-off for the first time and do it really well, but just make sure that they're not expecting you to do a second thing unless they recontract you Um, or just do a class. Like what, one of the side hustles I'm looking at right now is we have a, an arts guild, that's just starting to take um, creative writing classes again. So I would just be working. I would just make one class and then be like, okay, did I like that? Was that worth it? Are they asking me back? But then you get into the, the next question, which is how many do you need? Well, I guess it, mat- it makes sense to look at how many you can handle. Like if you have three side hustles going, but they're all only like an hour a week commitment or only, or they're spread out throughout the summer. Maybe you could take on more. It's, it's all going to come down to personal preference and how good you are at managing your time. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. And I can see that it takes a lot of personal honesty about (laughs) what, yeah, about how you man yeah how you can manage your time and how you like to behave but also how you like to spend your time because some things will seem like a lot more work because you don't actually like doing it and sometimes you're putting in a ton of hours doing something but you absolutely love it so you're just going to keep going back to that thing at like editing a podcast or editing music videos being like uh no this is great this is fulfilling me in so many other ways So you kind of have to have a few that feed your soul and a few that pay the bills. Yeah. I also feel like just kind of in the vein of redefining the side hustle that it, it matters why you're doing it. Like um, I was just at a marketing conference and there, they talk a lot about living your why because ultimately um, your brand is people. And if you're living the way that you're telling other people to view you, then you don't, you never have a conflict. So you actually have to live out your why, um, which isn't hard, the, the doing it part, but it's finding your why. That's the hard part. Because some people are like, well, I just, I just really like, um, I just really like acting okay, that's true and absolutely correct and probably what got you this far, but why do you want to be an actress? Or um, why do you want to be a writer? It's It's probably not to write the next great American novel. There's probably something else there that keeps you going back to the page. So when you're thinking about these side hustles, um, and try and accepting them and figuring out how many you want to, to include in your day to day life. Um, is it feeding you creatively? Is it feeding you in some other ways? Is it making it, are you making sure that, um, it's not taking away from you more than it really should be? Because, um, I think you hit it right on the nose that you need to be, it takes a lot of personal honesty and personal honesty, although it's really difficult, it is something that you get to do kind of alone at your computer or alone in your room. So I'm having difficulty with this because I'm having, uh, because for a number of years I have um, had jobs where they were, I, I was very upfront about the fact that I was an actress and that that was something I was pursuing and they were supportive of that, but they could only of course be supportive up to a point. And they, because you know, you only have so many hours that they can give you, uh, off. And especially the other challenge was that they were the more low paying jobs. They weren't jobs that, um, you know, were, this is what your college degree is for, uh, kind of jobs. And so, uh, they were 
as a result, usually very up upfront receptionist types of jobs, not like, oh, work remotely on your own schedule. We trust you to get your work done. No, they were like, no, you need to be doing the dishes and you need to be cleaning the coffee machine and you need to be, um, you know, or you need to be doing this work and showing up. And, you know, over the years, I kind of um, graduated that into a couple of other things that I felt were like, I mean, and as it turned out, they were kind of inching me towards things rather than taking larger leaps of finding jobs that were able to work remotely. Um, but they were, I mean, they were ideas that corporate people had for me of like, Hey, this is how you could manage this. And, uh, you know, maybe you could, you know, try corporate training. Um, and then I went to go work at a company that had, some media associated with it. And I was like, Oh, I'll work with I'll I'll sort of worm my way into the media department, I'll just get this job here and then try to move laterally, or even, you know, whatever I I, I tried, but it, it was unfortunate, because it was the, um, the timing meant that that media department was being completely shut down. And they were moving into the company itself was moving into different, a, a completely different direction, or it just they were focusing very much on their obvious um, profit centers because of the downturn that they were experiencing that the whole economy was going through. Um, and I did move at that point um, out of the Bay Area. And then um and I, I guess I just took those lessons with me and it was so like, well, how am I supposed to aspire to anything? Like I don't, I, while I want to be an actor and I do love that feeling and I do want to get paid for this, like I'm struggling in my day job feeling very, um, just this, like the status, like I feel like the thing that I'm actually doing for eight hours a day is really unsatisfying because I can do in life so much more. Like I can achieve so much more um, in eight hours a day. And the acting thing is like, you know, four hours in the afternoon and, or evening or whatever, taking a class, being in a show and so it's it was just exhausting to spend eight hours a day being not, you know, not fulfilling any kind of potential and then going somewhere maybe for four hours and um, and also kind of, again, being in a position where you're kind of being told what to do, but you're enjoying it. It's much more it's much more fun. Um, and. And then again, like people are like, well, we're not really going to promote you or we're not really sure we want to promote you because really what you want to do is be an actor. And so you're not really, you're not looking at this job very, like very seriously or like you really want to go anywhere with it. Or maybe that was in my head, but that was certainly how I felt. And certainly my jobs where I was getting promoted most recently, it was when I wasn't in a show anymore. <laughs> it was, oh, you're done with that? Okay, great. Well, we really like to keep you, keep your eyes on the prize uh, here at this job. That is my struggle. <laughs> like, <laughs> how do I feel like I am, one, fulfilling a potential that I have, you know, in, not in like every hour, but yeah, kind of like every hour, Two, by not exhausting myself and using the energy that I have during the day for doing something that uh, creates income. Like, I know people say they are so lucky that when they find those jobs, they're like, I'm so lucky because I'm doing what I love. And I'm like, yes, that is what I want. I want to be <laughs> that lucky. Yes, that lucky. Me. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like we always have so many things coming at us because we have this like, oh, well, I don't, these jobs don't want to promote anybody who's not super serious about being at that job. But at the same time, like, literally, how are you supposed to get super serious about working at Starbucks? Uh, and I, I struggle with the same thing too, where I'm like, okay, I 
I have the the fortunate I have the fortune of working for a company that I believe in that I am doing something that I really like. But now that I kind of crafted the role into something that uses my creativity and uses my degree and uses, you know, some of my some of my um, softer skills. Uh, it's it is emotionally draining. It is draining creatively. And so when I come home, I'm like, oh, look, it's happening again. I'm drained. I'm either drained because I use all my creativity at work or I'm drained because I'm not being um, I'm not doing anything at work or, or I'm working my butt off to to serve coffee or whatever. Yeah, like you, you just have so many things that you're concurrently balancing and then to come back to the idea of a side hustle, it, it became so unthinkable to do a side hustle. Like it was one of those things where I was like, there's just no way I'm not going to do something else. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I understand all the benefits of it, of it, but how are, how are you supposed to balance all of this stuff? It becomes a full-time job just to balance everything and make sure that you're like happy and fulfilled. And then there's this small, tiny voice that's like, oh, but you could be doing more. <laughs> yeah. Thirdlove.com. Because if you're going to do the hustle, the girls got to be taken care of. <laughs> Vicky, you mentioned yeah. on the Book of Faces that <laughs> you rode a trolley to a bunch of grocery stores for a grocery store marketing convention. <laughs> what were you observing on this tour? <laughs> okay, so I work for a very niche. Uh, cor- it's not a corporate, like, I don't even know how to describe it. So the company that I work for is technically its own thing. Like I work for a co-op and it has its own rules and it has its own, you know, bylaws and we run ourselves as an independent business however we are in a cooperative of co-ops called ncg uh the national cooperation of grocers and they put on a big marketing event like they put on events for all the different departments within the cup within a co-op but i went to the marketing one obviously because i'm in the marketing department and it was so cool. Um, one of the things that they encourage you to do all the time, especially as marketing people, especially as co-op people, is to go around and look at the other co-ops. Go and look at the other grocery stores. See what other people are doing. Because it'll give you insight, but it'll also give you ideas. And it'll also be like, especially if it's another co-op, you can literally use their idea because we're a cooperative. So if they're doing something cool, I can literally just write to their marketing manager and be like, hey, can I have that sign? Can I have that font? Can I have that whatever? And they'll literally send it to us. Nice. So that's the type of that's the type of co- cooperation I work work with. But what we were doing is so they they hired a trolley for whatever reason. Apparently, I was the only one on a trolley. Not, I mean, my group was the only one on a trolley, but it was like a trolley bus and it had like wood paneling and everything. So we like rode in style to all these different grocery stores. So we went to the co-op in the area. We went to um, Hy-Vee, which is uh, the the Iowa normal grocery store is Hy-Vee. Um, like you have Ralph's and... Vons and stuff like that. So they have Hy-Vee in Iowa. And then um, we went to another co-op type store that wasn't actually a co-op to kind of get a feel for like what they're doing and how they're representing themselves, even though they're not a co-op. So yeah, basically we were charged with going in, looking at how they're marketing stuff, looking at how their store is laid out, see like, and working with their um with their slogan 
like Hy-Vee is a smile in every aisle and they're like see how they're actualizing that and pro tip they're not but (laughs) oh no (laughs) (laughs) at least not at the Hy-Vee that I was at it was it was there were some grouchy pusses there were some lack of eye contact people and then there was like literally a disgruntled looking manager on a picture on a very large picture and I was like (laughs) (laughs) we're not living up to this (laughs) oh no oh my gosh (laughs) and for such a for such a cute slogan like you would think that they would really lean into it oh no oh no no (laughs) oh no oh But yeah, I got to ride in a trolley with a whole bunch of other really cool co-op people. And we were just sitting around discussing all the different marketing plans and and talking about how very strange it is. Because on the back of the trolley, it literally said just married. So the guy must have come (laughs) from a wedding. (laughs) Side, Side note, like, yeah, so the trolley probably just came from a wedding. And we were all sitting there going, so... I I mean the bride and groom isn't going to like ride in a trolley by themselves. So is this a party trolley? Is it like taking you from the venue, like the reception from from like the wedding venue to the reception venue? Are 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 is this a party trolley? Are we like bar hopping? Like what in what circumstance would you need a trolley for a wedding? But apparently it's very popular in Iowa City. <laughs> oh, I think I would have liked that better than a limo. Certainly the pictures would be super cute. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it definitely. Okay. Yeah, maybe just for the photo op because it was. It was like beautifully wood paneled and had like bars and like not bars, but like grab bars and stuff. Wow. So. Wow. Yeah, that I mean, it's interesting. Marketing people are interesting. <laughs> Let me just put it that way. <laughs> Now, we have a segment in our podcast called The Review of a Problematic Thing. And since it's summertime, I thought I would ask you about water parks because you and Aubrey are, or have been at least, big water park fans. Tell us about that. Water park connoisseurs, if you will. No, yeah, it's definitely been on my mind now that it's warming up. Uh, Minnesota hasn't been a very, it hasn't been a very warm summer. So I'm getting a little antsy. Like I want to, I want to put my body in water and it's just not happening. But yeah, Aubrey and I had, um, we did our honeymoon. It was a water park tour of the U.S. So we went all across, we took a month off from work, which we planned well, well in advance so that our, our respective, um, Co- uh, places of work at the time knew and we were going to take a, uh, an entire month and all that stuff. But uh, we went from Vegas down to Texas, which we went to Schlitterbahn. And then we went over to Florida where we went to a wet and wild. And then we went up um, into Georgia where we went to, was it another wet and wild? I think so. Um, and we went to Ohio where we went to Kalahari, which I highly suggest and recommend. Um, if you have any inclination for a water park, it's an indoor water park, so you can go year round. Um, and then we went to Wisconsin Dells. So we went to Noah's Ark and that was, that was our water park tour. There was, we were going to go up into Canada and go to another indoor water park that has like bungee jumping into water which in retrospect I'm really I'm really glad we didn't make like we could have made it fit we could have made it fit we had time but we ultimately decided to go home early because we were done (laughs) 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 Um, but yeah I I don't know if I would have been able to bungee jump into water that sounds really scary now maybe I would have done it you know, six, seven years ago, but not right now. But yeah, we're, we're largely water park connoisseurs. We got a season pass to wet and wild the year that it came to Las Vegas. And uh, Aubrey is a water park lover from way back. And kind of the, the problematic part about all of this is that it's such a huge, um, like it's not a good use of water at all. Oh, 
it's not a it they don't like they don't try to figure out ways to conserve or to um make it so that there's less evaporation like they don't put lids on anything at night and i don't know how they work it out in las vegas but it's got to just be freaking awful because they have like when it when all the droughts were happening the bellagio like was being questioned like how are you conserving water blah 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 yeah i don't know um but and in some of these areas, like I know at Schlitterbahn, they have like a thing that dumps you out. Uh, like you go down a water slide and instead of a lazy river, it's a literal river, literally a river that brings you to the next water park. And it's a really cool concept and a really cool feature, like this like very unique feature of this water park. But uh, it's got to be wreaking havoc on the ecosystem right there along the river. Like there's, there's people constantly scrambling out of the water. There's definitely got to be some erosion problems. And I just feel like, uh, I feel like it's, it sh- I shouldn't, I shouldn't contribute to this terrible situation, but at the same time, like, is it any different than when I put a tube in to the Apple River up here in Wisconsin and go down the river? Is it any different than that? Uh, is the landscape hardy enough to accommodate this, really? Because in Texas, it's just going to grow back in like 45 minutes. In Wisconsin, it's just going to grow back in like 45 minutes. So is this a, is this an other people's problem? And I just don't want to be that person, you know? Yeah, that sounds not good. Coming from California, I'm obsessed with water and went to Idaho one time, was driving by the Snake River in order to get up to McCall, Idaho, and just kept like literally jolting and thinking somebody left the water on. Somebody left the water on. It's, <laughs> you know, Jessica, these are big rapids and that's nature (laughs) (laughs) gotta turn your water off like I've always been a turn your water off while you're brushing your teeth like don't take too long of showers all of that stuff and then I sit here and I participate in this like very water depleting thing oh I even went like when I was in Hawaii we went out of our way to go to wet and wild in Hawaii and I was just like what are we doing? <laughs> this is so silly and so wasteful. I don't know. What, like, how do you do that? Can you, can you, like, can I ask water parks, like, at the door to offset my water consumption? Like, can I just, like, buy some, buy some real estate in an ocean? Like, you know how they oh, have, like, hope. Wow. Ho- they have like hope patches and oceans that are like conserved ocean that they're actively like cleaning up and all this stuff. I I will buy hope patches at the door of a water park just so I can be like, okay, I'm going to go play in this water. So I can, and therefore I can definitely know that another patch of water is going to be safe. <laughs> yeah. Your carbon offset, but your H2O offset. <laughs> My H2O offset. <laughs> Grilled Cheese and Drin is brought to you by a mattress company. Actual mattress companies do not know about the podcast yet, but we know all about them, and we like mattresses. We think you probably do too. We hope that you are all sleeping on a comfortable mattress tonight. But if you're not, consider finding a mattress today. This mattress ad is brought to you by Sleeping. This episode's interview is with creative entrepreneur Jody Rice. In 2012, having left a career in the theater for what some of us would call a glamorous life in film, Jody pivoted again in order to develop a successful and growing business out of a separate creative side hustle. The business that you have had been a side hustle, kind of. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So tell us about your business. Okay. Well, I design cross-stitch patterns. Um, and so if you... Remember what cross stitch is like. Your grandmother probably did it. Uh, you probably, my mom did. Yeah, you I probably did. did it as a kid. Um, most kids at some point uh, get taught how to do it. You know, you just make all these little X's and they come together to make a picture. Um, and so I designed the the charts that you 
use to make a cross stitch project. Um, so it's a little bit of graphic design mixed with um, embroidery skills and that sort of thing. Um, but I don't actually sell the finished projects. I just sell patterns. So um, I don't have to make the same thing over and over and over. I make a pattern once and then I can sell it forever. So when I knew you, well, first we met, you were an actor. Right. And then you transitioned into this awesome costume designer uh, and set designer, right? You were kind of mise-en-scene. Yeah, mostly costumes though, yeah. And then you went into animation, right? Right. So tell, tell me about that. <laughs> um, yeah, I was working in uh, costuming. Well, I was working for our alma mater, Cal State, was Hayward. Now it's Cal State East Bay. Um, I was working as the staff uh, costume shop manager. So I was responsible for uh, getting all the costumes made and pulled and altered and getting everything on stage basically for all the productions that were, that went on throughout the year. Wow. And yeah, it was a lot of work. Um, and it was, you know, it was a creative job for sure. Very creative. Uh, but it was also, I think I just, at the time I was really young, you know, it was pretty much right out of college that I started that job. Uh, after doing that for a few years, I just decided that I was feeling kind of just like I hadn't experienced enough of the world. You know, I was working at the same school that I had gone to and living in the same town I grew up in. And I just thought, you know, I gotta, I gotta do something else with my life. It's too soon to sort of lock everything down in this place where I grew up, you know? Yeah, yeah. So I had always been really um, interested in animation and I was especially getting more interested in it at that time um, because of, it was sort of like the beginning of Pixar. And um, this was, you know, what, 2002, I guess. Um, and I just thought, I really like to draw and I really like uh, animation and maybe I could try that. And it, it was just very much a whim. I didn't know why I wanted to do it. I just thought like, well, what the heck, I'll try it. So I applied to grad school at UCLA for their animation program and was very surprised that I got in. It was it was a great experience and it was absolutely life-changing to, to do that and to sort of... Um, I feel like that's where I really f was able to find my creative voice, um, which I hadn't been able to do as much working in costuming. So um, I really developed my confidence as an artist and as a designer. And I just, it, it was a, a great experience. So, wow. Yeah. And you probably learned a ton of tools. Yes, too. for sure. Yeah. That's where I really, you know, I wasn't especially computer savvy before, I went there and I had to get very savvy very quickly um, because everyone around me knew Photoshop really well and, you know, knew all these editing tools and all this stuff. And so I just had to really sort of dive right into that and, and catch up really quickly and become a much more technically savvy person, um, which has helped me immensely in my new life um <laughs> just to not just not that necessarily that the tools are the same you know i'm not using editing software now or you know 3d animation software but i'm much more confident with my ability to learn new software and to learn oh. technical stuff. then you got out of grad school and you yeah actually what happened was i uh, i hadn't finished yet but um i had gotten to the point where I was done with all my coursework and I needed to do my thesis project, which was a short, make a short film. And, um, I had been in school at that point for three years and the student loans were racking up and I started to feel like I can't spend another year just accruing more debt just to make this film where I don't have to actually go to class. You know, you can just make the film and turn it in and then you're done. So, you know, as long as they <laughs> like it and accept your <laughs> thesis. Um, so 
I thought, I'm just going to take a job, a short-term job, and then I'll work on my thesis, you know, in my spare time. (laughs) Because that's so easy to do. (laughs) So, um, yeah, I just, I applied to a couple of different studios um, and ended up getting a job at this company, uh, which at the time... Uh, they were called Pixel Liberation Front. Ooh. Oh, yeah. yeah. I've seen them. Yeah. The- yeah. Um, they did, a, they used like to work on a lot of and- stuff. Oh, yeah. 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 The Matrix. And, um, they specialized in doing pre-visualization, oh. which so like we call previs in oh, the biz. Okay. Is that storyboarding? Or <laughs> it's is- essentially storyboarding in, but in 3D. So it's, oh. it's done. It's 3D animation. It's, fleshing out a storyboard essentially with actual physical objects and people oh, wow. and cameras so that directors can plan, okay, this is the camera we're going to use. This is the move the camera's going to make. And, you know, we need the cars here and the people, you know, like it's essentially building out a storyboard into three dimensions in the computer. So it was really amazing. It was a great experience because I got to work really closely with these really big directors like John Favreau and Louis Leterrier and all these really cool people, um, you know, I'd be in the meeting with them, like getting notes and, and working out, like, how are we going to make this sequence work? And uh, so it was an amazing experience for somebody right out of school. Um, wow. Yeah, it was very cool. But of course I, you know, I did the first movie and it was, I think that, job was maybe a like nine months commitment or something like that. Um, and then I got laid off and then it was supposed to be, okay, now I'm supposed to work on my thesis. That was the plan. <laughs> and instead it was, oh crap, now I have to pay rent and, you know, take care of myself without student loans helping me. I can't just live off of unemployment and work on my thesis and you know, it it just, it didn't work. And so I, I took another movie job and another movie job and it just kept happening. Uh, at that point I was feeling like, um, I had been working on these movies and the job was creative, but it was also very much a managerial kind of position. I wasn't just an animator working Mm -hmm. on, on shots. I was managing artists and, budgets and schedules and that all that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. And the creative elements of my job were getting uh, farther and few, fewer and farther between. Um, And I, I was just starting to feel like this isn't really what I went to school for. This isn't why I wanted to do this. You know, um, when you're working on these big, huge movies, you're just like this tiny little cog in this gigantic machine. You know what I mean? And it's so yeah, yeah. your little contribution is usually like such a tiny portion of the whole. And it wasn't like I was doing any, it wasn't my dream that I was making happen right. up there on the yeah. screen. You know what I mean? Like <laughs> Iron Man 2 is not the movie that I would make if I, <laughs> You know, it was like, this is somebody else's vision of what this should be. And um, so I I just was feeling super uh, depressed. Oh, wait. Okay, so there's a whole other facet of this. In between movie jobs, to supplement my income, I had started working as a seamstress. Oh, my gosh. Because, (laughs) yeah, because um, I had that background, you know, uh, from costuming. It was a skill that I could do and it wasn't, you know, working at Jamba Juice or something. It seemed like something a little more fun for me. Um, so I had just replied to a Craigslist ad to where they needed seamstresses. Um, and it was this company called French General, which is a sort of lifestyle brand. Um, oh. They have a retail shop in LA and... Um, a line of fabrics and oh. wallpaper and all this different stuff. And they French general has been around for like 20 years and it's just a very small family business. Um, but it's, I really loved working with them. And one of the things that after working with them 
off and on for a year or two, they asked me to help them because they were doing a book on sewing and they needed help with that. And so I ended up becoming really involved uh, with designing new products and then doing the illustrations for the, you know, the technical illustrations and the directions on how to sew things and all that kind of stuff. And so that was very creative and it really kind of fulfilled that need for me to like, feel like it was something that I was really contributing to and not just like managing spreadsheets and budgets and stuff. And um, it was a sort of introduction into this world of the crafting business, which I didn't, I hadn't really thought of it as a business, but it's a huge business, the sort of creating things for people to make because people love making stuff, sewing and you know, embroidery and scrapbooking and quilting. And I mean, it's just huge. Yeah. yeah. Um, It's a huge industry and it's a huge uh, group of people working in it. And so I started doing that. And so when I, they kept sort of pushing me saying, you know, you should be, you could do this. Like you could have your own business doing this. Oh. And I kept sort of resisting it and saying like, no, I'm an animator. That's why I came to LA. I came to LA to work in movies and be an animator. And that's what I'm doing. And I started to realize that maybe there was, they were onto something and that I should give myself permission to maybe consider that that could be a career for me. And so it was about 2012. I was um, between movies and I thought, what could I do where I wouldn't have to make the same thing over and over and over? Because people kept saying, open an Etsy shop. You're so creative and there's Etsy now and you could, you could have an Etsy shop. But I thought, I don't want to make whatever the same potholder. Yeah. Yeah. Over and over and over and over. Like then I'm at my own sweatshop. I don't want to yeah. do that, you know? Yeah. And then I have to charge like a hundred dollars for this potholder <laughs> in order to like pay myself a living wage to do it. And then I real that's when I started to realize that selling patterns online was a thing. And then I really started thinking that's something I could do. You know, I could, I can do the design. I can write up the pattern because I have that skill I can do the photography of the sample because I learned those skills in film school. And then I can just sell the pattern and I don't have to make that thing over and over and over. And it was like a light bulb went off and I just kind of went, that is so smart. (laughs) And at first I thought, Oh, this will just be something I do to make a little extra income in between movies. And um, I, and then it just took off and it just became, uh, way more successful than I ever anticipated. And I realized one day I could just do this. And it's funny because I think a lot of people have this idea that you have to pick a passion and then figure out how to make money from it, you know? And I sort of, approached it from a different angle, I sort of decided like, there's all these things I can do. And what, which one of these things can I make money from? I'll try that. And so cross stitch was not something that I thought, oh, this is this is a thing I really love. I was not passionate, particularly about cross stitch before I uh, started designing cross stitch. I it was something where I, I did a lot of research on the the market of online uh, pattern selling mm-hmm. and sort of determined that that niche, that there was a lot of room for some new designers and that there was a need for some new kind of uh, approach. And that's why I decided cross-stitch. It wasn't like, oh my God, this is what I've always wanted to do. I love cross-stitch so much. It was, here's something where I think I could make a mark. And then the more it succeeded and the more 
people responded to it, the more passionate I got about it. And I very quickly became super passionate about cross-stitch <laughs> and now it's my whole life. But I came at it from the other direction. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, that's really interesting. Um, because I think it's, I, I think a lot of people feel like I have to, I'm passionate about whatever cupcakes. I have to do cupcakes. That's all I can, you know, that's the thing you always hear, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Pick your passion and follow it and you'll succeed. But that's not necessarily true. I think there's some things like say cupcakes where it's the marketplace is so flooded with that particular thing that you might not succeed, even if they're great cupcakes. Yeah. There's so many um, factors that have to come together to create success in, in a really flooded market like that. Well, I think, you know, I mean, there's everybody's different, obviously, but I think there's probably a lot of people like me who I was passionate about a lot of things. And I was curious about a lot of different facets of creativity. Uh, You know what I mean? Like, it wasn't just, I was born to be a costume designer, and that's all I'll ever want to do. You know, there's probably people like that. There definitely are people that are like, that's been my goal my whole life, and I'm going to do it. I was more the kind of person who was like, I just like creativity. Like, I like making <laughs> stuff. That's end of the goal. Like, I want to make stuff that's new and different in the world. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. I just want to add things to the world that had that didn't exist before, basically. Yes. Oh, yeah. And so it's like, it could be anything. You know, it could be I got really passionate about designing doorknobs. I don't know. Like, yeah. whatever. It's And so... I think people limit themselves. They sort of see one thing that they're good at or that they are told early on that they're, that they should be excited about or passionate about. And they sort of go, well, that's my thing. And I got to make it work in that realm or I'm a failure. And it's sort of like, no, you know, maybe that's your thing, but maybe there's another avenue that you could put your energy towards that needs you. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, there's, I keep hearing all the time from customers, like, oh, my God, your designs are what I've been waiting for. Like, this is the thing I I needed to get me back into cross-stitch or to, like, before I saw your stuff, I never wanted to do this. And that, honestly, is like crack. You hear that from one customer, (laughs) and you want it all the time. Like, you want to hear it over and over and over. Um, And so... You know, I tell people all the time, like, you hear this old cliche of, like, find a need and fill it. And that is absolutely the key to my success as a business owner was, like, I saw an opening in that market and said, somebody's not doing that. And it could be me. I'm going to do it. And your research that you did in preparation for it, how how did you know where to even look for what needed you? Um, I started with Etsy because I knew that was the easiest sort of selling platform for me to get into. Um, and I just started, I don't know, I probably Googled like, I knew I wanted to, to do patterns in the needle arts category. Um, so I, I probably just kind of started Googling around and and looking for who else is doing this, who else is selling patterns in this category and what are they like? And, um, you know, there were people who I saw who, for instance, there's a company called Sublime Stitching, which does uh, embroidery designs, which is, they do surface embroidery, which is different from cross stitch. Um, And I've actually since become friends with that, shop owner, uh, Jenny Hart. She's like a huge deal in the embroidery community. Oh, cool. And, you know, I saw what she was doing and how much success she had doing it. And for a little while I thought, oh, I could do that. I'll do what she's doing. And then kind of realized like, but if I try to do what she's doing, she's already doing it so well. Why would I put myself in competition with somebody who's super good at what she's doing, you know? And I sort of made her like my, um, 
my goal, like, okay, I want to be the Jenny Hart of something else. Oh. What's it going to be? You know, and I tried to find a category that I could get into. You know, knitting was already super saturated. Oh, my gosh. So many great designers working in knitting. And there's just, it's, there's already a ton of great stuff there. Crochet, you know, like quilting. I kept looking kind of like, where could it, because I could do all those things. Um, And then, you know, I just sort of went, oh, cross stitch. Well, that I could definitely do. And I felt like there isn't a Jenny Hart of cross stitch right now. I could be that person. And so that's what I'm trying to do. That is... I don't think I've gotten there quite yet because she's a pretty big deal, but um, (laughs) I'm I'm aiming for it. That's 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 my goal. So how did the timing work? How did you know when it was time to leave French General or to leave film work entirely? You know, I, it was a, I, they were very cool with me sort of making my own schedule with them. Um, and the cross stitch stuff is very easy to kind of do wherever. So I would, there, there were times when I was just working in their store. Basically, I was just being a shop girl, like sitting in the shop waiting for people to come in, but I could bring my work with me, you know, and so that was, that made it really easy. Um, but there, there finally came a point where I was feeling resentful of the time I had to spend oh. working for French General because oh. it was like, uh, but I need, there's so much I need to do and there's so much I want to be doing with Satsuma Street. I haven't even said the name of the oh, business yes. yet. It's Satsuma Street. Um, and so that's when I kind of knew, okay, I think it's time to say to them, like, I can't really work for you anymore. Like, I have to just spend all my time on Satsuma. And once I did that, then Satsuma really took off. Once I finally committed to, this is all I'm doing. Partly because just spending more time on it, there, you know, makes it a better business. But also, there's a pressure on me to like, you really need to step it up now. Yeah, yeah. You know, you have to get this this has to support you now if you're not going to yeah. have this other job. So um, yeah, it's a different, it was definitely like a moment where I sort of realized I can't do both. You yeah. Know, you, I have to just commit to one thing. So. And were you, um, you, you got a, a ton of press. Yeah. In the beginning and, yeah. and ongoing. Had you, was that through PR? No. That you had? <laughs> That's so cool. Pure. Look, that was really, I mean, that's the kind of thing where I say there is a lot of elements of luck in anyone's success, you know, like, no matter what they say, like, a lot of it is just, they they got a break, you know. Um, and I did, I credit a lot of that with getting into social media, oh. right, as it was sort of becoming hugely important for businesses. I happened to be launching my business right around that same time. Oh. So for instance, Instagram, which is huge for me, um, it had just started taking off at exactly the same time that my business was taking off, like about oh. 2013. Um, and so I just started naturally using it. I just found, I felt like oh, this is fun, you know, and I wasn't, it wasn't that sense of like, oh God, you have to be really active on social media or your business will fail. Like yeah. it just happened very organically for me. I just enjoyed doing it. And uh, so that, you know, things kind of went viral without me trying to make them go viral. They just happened. And yeah. um, I think that's how I got a lot of success on Etsy. And then, you know, people like NPR, when they called Etsy and said, we're looking for somebody to do a story on, Etsy was sort of like, well, here's one of our success stories, you know? So um, it was a little bit of me just having kind of being in the right place at the right time with social media. And then also just pure luck, I think. That's fantastic. Yeah. And then, you know, you get one story and then somebody else hears about it and, and you get some more, but then things sort of, dry up, you know, like I'm no longer the new kid on the block in my 
market, you know, it's sort of like, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, we know about her. We need a new story about somebody we've never heard of, you know. Uh. So things have definitely slowed down um, in that regard. Like I'm not getting the kind of really great press that I was when I was, you know, sort of newer to the market. So now I have to work a little harder for it, <laughs> which is okay. We've got your releases. You just released something yesterday. Yeah, I'm doing this uh, Zodiac series. Ooh. So yeah, I sort of very much on a whim back in January thought to myself, I mean, I think I should do the all the 12 signs of the Zodiac. Yeah. And I'll do one a month. <gasps> and that'll be really fun. And not really sort of realizing like I'm setting myself this pretty big goal to do 12 new designs and I have to release them on a very steady schedule of one a month. And um, so now every month when they, when it's like, Oh God, now I have to work on the next sign. And it's like <laughs> this, you know, it's sort of like this thing looming over me. So now I've done seven of them and I'm feeling like, okay, I'm over the hump. I can get this done. Like, you know, because after one or two, I was like, oh my God, this is this daunting project that I'm going to do in addition oh to all the other designs oh. that I do. Because oh. I, so now I'm on a schedule of doing about two new designs a month, which is. Oh my gosh. It's pretty. Does that include the Zodiac? Yeah. Yeah. It's. Wow. And then I also do magazine work and I just did a design for a book that I was asked oh. to submit a, a project for a book so it's um yeah it's a it's a lot i, I do a lot of new work yeah. every month it's, so you're so a cross stitch in a book or just yeah it's a other, book of like, christmas cross stitch projects and oh so gosh. for like 20 i guess it'll be released next year wow. um yeah so i've been out i get asked pretty regularly to submit stuff for books and magazine um, publication. So that's nice too. That's another good way to kind of build a following. And yeah. Um, and then I usually have a license where they have the rights to that design for a certain period, six months or a year, and then I get the rights back and then I can sell it in my shop. So that's, wow. yeah. So uh, I'm just churning out the work. <laughs> That's Every amazing. Month. Tell us all the details. <laughs> See, the Etsy. Yeah. So the business is called Setsuma Street, which I get asked all the time, why is it called Setsuma Street? And it's because that's the street I live on. Oh. It's very unimaginative. <laughs> I live on Setsuma Street. And I just, I didn't realize that it was going to become something. I didn't know it was going to become the big thing. And then it did. And so when I started it, I was like, I need a business name. Uh, I'll just use my street name. I like the it. word Satsuma. Now, of course, I type it like a hundred times a day. <laughs> I don't love it as much, but um, <laughs> yeah. So the shop is called Satsuma Street and on Etsy, you can find it at um, etsy.com backslash Satsuma Street. Um, and I also have my own website, satsumastreet.com, where you can... Um, that's really more for wholesale, but you can reach me there. And then um, I'm on Facebook and Instagram. My handle is Craftnik. Uh, N-I-K? N-I-K, yeah. Uh -huh. <laughs> yeah, which I didn't, you know, again, I started Instagram. I didn't have, I didn't know, like, it was going to become my business thing, you know. So I just, it was just a little dumb name I came up with. And now it. it's like... <laughs> Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's how you find me. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you so much for You're sharing welcome. all this. Yeah. It was fun. <laughs> One of the other things since our show is called Grilled Cheese and Gin, we definitely want to include recipes every now and then when we can about grilled cheese or gin. A lot of people know this recipe. This is for a gin drink. So, I mean, of course, you can make all kinds of drinks with gin. You can have gin all by itself. Um, but one of our favorites, and we have totally done this on a hot Vegas summer day by the pool, is made French 75s. 
And we've actually had these with grilled cheese. So you could make grilled cheese and have French 75s. The fun thing about them is that uh, French 75s are gin and champagne and lemons, which I love, and simple syrup. So it's got some sweetness to it. And then uh, you put a lemon zest or a lemon twist in it. And definitely ice um, makes it cool. And you can make a whole... Uh, not a bucket. What am I trying to say? Like a jug. You can make a jug of this and, um, and then just give, and just give people a bunch of little lemon zests. Um, or you can make it individually. We actually did put it in like a, a glass, um, a jar. Pitcher. Pitcher. Yeah. Thank you. Pitcher. We made it in pitchers. Um, and it was super tasty and you can get tanked pretty fast, especially because of the <laughs> champagne, because that just goes right to everybody's head. Um, so it says in a cocktail shaker, combine the gin and the lemon juice and the simple syrup shake, strain it into a champagne flute and top the flute with champagne and use a lemon twist for garnish. Um, that's what the, um, recipe that I'm reading and that we went by, but of course we adopted it because we were doing a pitcher situation to take it a whole nother step forward because we were by the pool. We didn't really want to have a lot of glass. So we just used solo cups. <laughs> it, it so, okay. Just fine. <laughs> what, what is the ratio do you, to use? So like ignoring the recipe, like what is your ratio of gin to champagne to simple syrup? If you're, if you're, if I'm making this like say right now and I have a gallon jug. <laughs> oh my gosh. A gallon jug. So you definitely, I think you want um, at least two or yeah, two bottles of gin. And mm-hmm. you'll probably end up using like uh, probably a bottle and a half for that pitcher. Well, depending on the size of your pitcher. So probably we only, uh, the pitcher that we used, we probably started with like a three quarters of one um, bottle of gin. But it's so hot, you just end up moving over to the second bottle later. And, and you'll be disappointed <laughs> if you don't have enough. So, yeah. So one bottle of gin. um Probably make uh, a cup, cup and a half of simple syrup. Mm-hmm. That's um, so. Yeah, make that and then let it cool. Do that in the morning, um, and then the lemon juice. I mean, y- you can sit there for days and squeeze out lemons on your lemon juicer, um, but you could also just buy it at Costco. Yesterday, I saw uh, two bottles of 100% lemon juice, so you can just probably buy that those at your liquor store too um and and just put like a cup of that in there and then i would actually do um like half champagne half gin in the pitcher and then add probably a cup or so of simple syrup and another cup of lemon juice okay and then stir it stir it stir it and put it over ice in the solo cup that is a really, yeah, that's a really easy recipe because then you can just be like bottle of gin, bottle of champagne, cup of simple syrup, cup of lemon juice, done and done. And then obviously you might want to adjust it if you're, <laughs> if you're not like us and are, have don't have a high tolerance of gin. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And maybe even put ice in the pitcher beforehand so that everything cools while you're doing it. That w- that actually might help because that'll when you're stirring it, the ice will probably help. The I'm not a, I'm not a super uh, bartender, I guess, or mixologist. <laughs> probably if there's a mixologist out there, they might have some more precise measurements. But I think that'll get you through. I think I think a bottle of gin, bottle of champagne will get you there. <laughs> Hey, everybody. We hope you're enjoying our Grilled Cheese and Gin podcast. For the next three weeks, from July 20th to August 3rd, 2017, we are launching our first Patreon level. If you give us just $1 to put some butter on our bread, we will mention you in future podcast credits. Also, please rate us and review us on iTunes and tell all your friends about us by tweeting and sharing us on all your favorite social media. And launch a gorilla paper campaign around your neighborhood and staple us to all of the telephone poles. And hire a skywriter. 
and <laughs> what else? <laughs> All of those. Yeah. All of those. And, and learn it in American Sign Language so that everybody can understand you. And make sure that you... Um, Write it on all the dollar bills that you give it, give to your barista at Starbucks, and make sure that you are painting it on your eyelids, so that when you close your eyes and you blink at someone, they're just seeing grilled cheese and gin, and it'll get into their brain subliminally. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. If, there, what if that's their Starbucks name? That would be cool. Oh, oh my gosh, yes. Have your barista say, um, half fat double chocolate mocha frappuccino for grilled cheese and gin (laughs) (laughs) also thanks to third love shrub hub and a mattress company for helping us through this rough time i mean they aren't actually sponsors but we do like them thanks to jacob and aubrey for their support of our changeable dream thanks to our guest jody rice from satsuma street for talking with us and sharing all of our insights thanks to scott haskin for the music thanks to cassie our producer for kraken dat whip and all of the art of grilled cheese and gin if you like this podcast please leave a review on itunes and we will give you a great big consensual interweb hug also please email us your questions at grilledcheeseandgin at gmail.com and follow us at our website at www.grilledcheeseandgin.com on twitter at grilledcheesegin spelled g-r-i-l-l-e-d-c-h-e-z-g-i-n pinterest and facebook are grilled cheese and gin also each of us are starting up our own individual podcast shortly keep an ear out for those join us next week for talk about traveling vicky went to japan and pokemon about jessica goes to wisconsin and our guest will be a cool someone with a life-changing story i am so excited for your podcast i <laughs> i cannot wait how you parody <laughs> To see how you parody. No, no, no let, let, let's do a commercial for this podcast. Hold on. Hold on. Let me think. <laughs> I bet I'm totally going to use Jacob's joke, too. <laughs> Grilled cheese and gin. But <laughs> I can't even do it. Grilled cheese and gin is brought to you by Shrub Hub. Shrub Hub for your shrubs in tubs. But if you have, if you're not into container gardening and you have a much larger yard, try our sister app, Thicketmaster. Thicketmaster for <laughs> acres upon acres of, of delightful bushery. <laughs> I don't know. It needs a little work. It needs a little polishing. But that could be a definite commercial to go in your new podcast. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it.